Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, if I said to you Batten, Barton, Durstein and Osborne, what would come to mind? Well, anyone in advertising might know that those uh, four names refer to BBDO, one of the most successful ad agency networks on the planet. They have over 200 locations worldwide and they are famous for winning an incredible amount of awards. Um, if I just reel off a, a short list of some of the awards they've won, uh, Most Effective Network in the World, Effie's in 2011, 14, 15, 17 and 21, Network of the Year, Can Lions at 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 17 and 18, and in fact, Network of the Decade, Can 2020. They are without doubt one of the most successful agency networks and the most creatively awarded too, not just at Can Lion, but also at Effie's, which I know as a former client myself is particularly important. So in this episode, I'm delighted to catch up with none other than the global CEO, Andrew Robertson. And I want to find out from him, firstly, what it's like being the CEO of such a big and successful agency. Now, he should know because he's been CEO for 18 years. In fact, I think he's the longest serving CEO of a major advertising agency anywhere in the world. So how has he maintained his position at the top of his game for so long? But also, how have they kept up their creative output? How do you stay relevant in a changing industry uh, that changes as rapidly as the advertising industry does? How do you stay on it? How do you motivate creative teams to continue pursuing great work? And what are his top tips for becoming a CEO that we can all learn from? This is a really wonderful conversation. It's one of those ones that oozes experience um, and wisdom and great advice. So I know you're in for a treat. Here's my conversation with Andrew Robertson. Andrew Robertson, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. Lovely to have you. Now, maybe if we could start from the beginning. I, I think if I've understood your CV right, uh, that both of us have got an economics degree and find ourselves in advertising. So how did you make the journey from economics over to the wonderful world of advertising? Well, I should, I should tell you that the journey actually was originally going to be in civil engineering. The economics was the thing I fell into after I fell out of civil engineering. And then when it comes to falling into things, I really did fall into advertising. I was going to be a civil engineer. I was growing up in South Africa. I had a place at Imperial College and the academic years finished you know, I finished in December and I wasn't going to start at Imperial until October. So I got a job as a, a trainee civil engineer working for a company called McAlpines on a, a building site in Windsor, the big shopping centre and parking garage in Windsor. And it was the winter of discontent. There was snow up to my thighs, uh, garbage lying all over the place. And I realised to my horror that it was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. But and I went home after four weeks and I said to my, my dad, I, 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 don't, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, better to find that out now than in four years' time, which was true. And he said, but I think you should start a degree. Just do something that you've never done before that you might find interesting and, and get onto that. So I, I, I decided I would do economics because it sounded vaguely interesting. Uh, I went to what was then called the City of London Polytechnic, but is now more grandly called City of London University and did economics. But I have to say it was, it was a very light relationship in that. Mm. I kind of was living in Maidenhead. I used to get the train in, go to a few lectures and, and then come back out. And, and I had a kind of thriving existence as a, I'd sold life insurance. I'd, I'd been offered this opportunity by a guy in, I worked as a barman in the Maidenhead Conservative Club. And this guy said, you can come and sell insurance for me. I'll give you two days training and the use of a telephone. 
which in those days was a big deal because you had to pay for every phone call. And on a Monday night, I would make 100 cold calls. And if I made 100 cold calls, I would get 10 appointments. If I made 10 appointments, I would get three sales. And if I got three sales, that was about 500 pounds a week, which was a lot of money in those days, especially for wow. a young kid living at home. So I would, you know, I'd get back from college. I would make these calls on a Monday. I'd do the appointments on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evening. And then afterwards, I would go to this nightclub called the Valbon in Maidenhead, and I would hang out there until about two or three in the morning. Uh, occasionally, I'd go and play backgammon at the Royal Berkshire Hotel until five or six in the morning, go home, sleep till about 11, get up, get the train back into the city, attend a few lectures and repeat. And it was a truly <laughs> magnificent existence until I hit the final semester when my dad said to me, you know, this, you know, this can't go on. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we're okay supporting you while you're a student, but the day you graduate, you either have to get your own car or pay your mother for the use of hers and you have to get your own place or pay us rent. And I realized that this whole existence that I treasured so much would, would collapse. And that night I was standing very kind of morbidly in the bar of the Valbon nightclub as they were closing it and they were putting the chairs on the tables and sweeping up stuff. And there was one guy standing next to me at the bar who I didn't know much about, but I knew he was there as often as I was. And he had an Alfa Romeo. And I said, what did you, what do you do for a living? And he said, oh, I work in advertising. And I said, I think I'm going to do that. And I thought, how can I do this? What can I do? And I changed my dissertation to something that would enable me to get into agencies, uh, mm. people. So I did, I did a dissertation on the impact of color magazines on Sunday newspapers. They were just, they'd just been interviewed. Oh. And that enabled me to get interviewed or to do interviews of media directors yeah. at various agencies in, in London. And it also enabled me to get a, an article published in Campaign. They, you know, I, I did a, a summary of my dissertation. They published it. And so I would go and see people for interviews and just hand them a copy of campaign magazine. And as a result of that, I was offered a job as a, as a trainee media planner at Ogilvy & Mather, which I, which I took. And, and that was how it all happened. But it was, a, you know, I wish, I wish there was more depth to any of that. It's <laughs> a wonderful story. It's, it's, it's not that dissimilar to my own, actually. I remember, so I did an economics degree, wanted to go into the city. I, I think I was attracted by the bright lights and, you know, fast lifestyle, that sort of thing. And, um, I started out in the tax department of Coopers and Librand, so all very serious. And one day I was doing a tax return for this guy and I started asking him about his job. It sounded really cool. And I said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I work in marketing for a global company. And I'm like, damn it, I want to be on this, that side of the table. Yeah. And it was, it was that chance conversation, actually, where I suddenly thought, yeah, I like the sound of what you do. And I quite fancy being in your chair, not mine. And it's funny how these little moments in in life become, you know, inflection points, don't they? Yeah. Well, and it, it all ties in with everything you guys have learned, right? Which is emotion drives behavior. It does. It really does, doesn't it? And, and, and it drives our memories as well. Because I love the fact that when you talk about your, your insurance job, you can still, you know, say how many deals a day was I doing and what the commission was. And, you know, it, it, it sticks with you, doesn't it? That's wonderful. Well, and look, if we fast forward to now, you've been uh, CEO of a very, you know, obviously very big network agency, BBDO, for quite some time now, of course. What's it like being a, a CEO? What, what, can you describe to me what a day in the life of Andrew Robertson looks like? <laughs> well, I, I, the first thing I'd say is, you know, I've, I have been doing it a long time. It's, it's coming out for 18 years that I've been CEO of BBDO Worldwide, which is, which is a long time. And, it, and it's interesting because you, I, 
you go from Wunderkind to veteran in about five years. <laughs> and, That's and, so true. Yeah. And I'm now definitely a veteran. I once was a Wunderkind, <laughs> but now I'm a veteran. But I think the thing I would say is that it's not really been a case of doing the same job for 18 years because the beauty of this business is that so much changes so fast that the job, the things I'm doing, the things I'm talking about today, a lot of them are so different from what they were five years ago, which in turn were so different from what they were 10 years ago and 15 years ago. So I think there's, a, there's, there's so much that, that moves in this business that, that as, long as, you're, as long as you're curious, interested and excited by that, um, mm. you know, there's plenty to keep playing for. And I, you know, I, I, love, I love what I do. I love my job. I love it as much today as I did the day I first started doing it. So I'll, I'll keep going till I get caught out. Well, if you, if you take yourself back then to, you know, the, the first day as CEO, what advice would you give to yourself or, or to anybody else who's making that jump to, to your kind of position? I think the first thing I would say is you have to get the people right. And that that's the hardest thing to get right. A, because finding and making sure you've got the right ones in place is hard enough. But B, because there are always things that can you know, run the risk of compromising your decision-making on people. But, but ultimately, you have to get the people right if you're going to be successful in this business. The, the second thing I would say is, and this is something I, I, I really feel strongly about, which is just like, yeah, focus on your clients, focus on your clients, focus on your clients and what they need. And, and part of that is just how you spend your time. I mean, I, every now and then we'll just look back over my calendar to see roughly how much time I'm spending with an on-client business and issues versus people issues versus management and organizational issues versus financial issues and, and making sure making sure that you keep the right amount of your time focused on, on clients, I think, is, is something yeah. that's certainly very important to me. And it's very easy to let that slip. The third thing is you really have to learn to love problems. You have to, if you, if you hope for a problem-free existence, you're gonna be horribly, horribly disappointed. And you really have to embrace the fact that, that problems need to be seen as an opportunity to do something amazing and, and to win against the odds because you can't avoid them. I mean, the further up you go, the, the more your daily diet is consumed with problems. <laughs> you get quite not suspicious of good news. Not, not because it's, it's wrong, but because even if it's right, you can assume that the next three people to walk into your office are gonna come with big problems. <laughs> so you have, you have to learn to love them. I do think that in this business, and I don't know if it's true and all, but I think you have to love what comes out of your agency and you have to be proud of that. And if mm. you can't be, it's not gonna be an exhilarating experience. It's gonna be an exhausting one. Yeah. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. It, it, it's really interesting hearing you talk about customer focus. I, I did an exercise where I look back at the parts of my career where I've seen the biggest, most rapid growth or transformation in, 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 you know, kind of over my career. And actually, I can, almost, I can correlate the percentage of my time that was spent on customer-focused yeah. uh, yeah. work. And, and it was all those times in my career where I ended up being drawn back into the internal mechanisms of the organization, you know, and my time and energy was spent inside rather than outside. And that's where it all slowed down. And, you know, 
you, you yeah. know, because when you're with customers, you you hear their problems, you understand their business, you you know, you, you can see how you can solve their problems, and it, it it makes a massive difference. That makes a lot of sense. That yeah, I mean, I I, I don't do it, to, I don't measure it to the minute, but but I, if I'm not yeah. spending fifty to sixty percent of my time on clients and client business, then I don't think I'm doing my job right. Yeah. There's a wonderful book I read actually on holiday last year called The Founder's Mentality, which looked at you know founder-led organisations versus sort of management-led ones, and and one of the principles in that was uh, frontline focus. Very much, you know, the more time spent with customers was a big indicator of successful growth for the business. Makes sense to me. It does. Um, now, one one of the one of the things I enjoyed uh, reading up about VBDO, of course, was the number of awards uh, you've won, and and you know most awarded uh, on Walk, of course, you know most most creatively awarded, I should say, agency and Network of the Year at Cannes. Uh, I think a record seven times. Am I right? Uh, Network of the Year seven times, and Network of the Decade. Yeah. yeah. Network of the Decade. Yes, that's yeah. right. In my head, you must have one very very large shelf in your office. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is it true? Where, uh, where do these awards go? It's actually go? not in my office. It's in David Lubar's office. But yeah, it is very, very, okay. very, very, very uh, there's a lot of metal. There's an awful lot yeah. of metal. Um, I'm imagining some structural engineering just to hold the damn thing up, you know, under the weight of uh, weight of all the platinum and brass and everything else. You know, well done and congratulations on that. That's, that's an astonishing achievement. Now, you know, naturally every agency would say that creativity is important. You've demonstrated it and you've got the proof. What, what makes the difference at BBDO compared to uh, other agencies? I think you're right. I mean, you'd have, to be, you'd have to be a bit of an idiot to say creativity doesn't matter or it's not as important as anything else. Nobody, I don't think anybody would say that. that. But the, the real point is not in defining the mission. The real point is believing in it and committing to it and acting against it with conviction. And again, part of it is you have to get the people right, but part of getting the people right is is having a positioning and a story for your agency that those kind of people gravitate towards. I think the reality is it's never a small number of big moves. It's actually thousands and thousands of decisions that are made every single day on all of our clients across all of our agencies around the world where you have the option to go one way or another, and you, you know, you, if you're serious about it, you try very hard to do the thing that is going to improve the quality of it. And if you're not, you may slip the other way. And if you do that once, that's okay, but if you do it 10 times, it's not gonna, you know, the, the gap, it gets wider and wider as you move out from the center. So, so I don't think there's anything unique about it. I do think it's relevant because I think there's so much data so much data that proves just how much more productive really good work is for our clients. And so I, I don't think that's a debate, but it, it's really about how serious you are about it and how it drives your decision making every single day on, on literally hundreds and thousands of decisions that are taking place around the network. And, and you just have to mean it. You just have to mean it. And I think, I think most of the time we do. Again, to, to win Network of the Year at Cannes, you can't do that with two or three campaigns from three agencies in the world. You can only do that if you have really good work being produced for lots of clients around the world by several agents, lots of agencies. That's yeah. the only way you get to those yeah. scores. So what I like to see is Network of the Year in the FEs because that, that's, a, that's a nice story to correlate with a Network of the Year in, in 
creative awards. But then also what you want is the agency, individual agencies of the year as well, because to some degree, you know, a network of, of the year is affected by how many agencies produce great work, which we want as a network. But a, an individual agency winning it is, is also very useful because they can only yeah. do it with the work that they, for the clients that they have. Well, that's what struck me, actually, is, is, is the number of different brands you've worked on and different a- agencies within the network that all contributed to the awards, which, which, as you say, real strength in depth. So how do you get the whole network working together? Is it sort of a series of individual excellent agencies or, or do you have an ethos when it comes to creativity that, you know, wherever you go in the network, would, would, you'd experience something similar? So, I, you know, to some degree, agency networks like people and countries are a function of the way they were built or you know your childhood drop shapes you and bbdo and this isn't down to me this is down to bruce crawford and alan rosenshine who who came before me took the view that as they expand look to expand around the world they would find really strong creative local agencies form an affiliation take a small percentage over time, increase the percentage, eventually move to full control or complete ownership. But but the strategy was find really strong, creative local agencies, and then we'll turn it into a network, rather than exporting the network to markets on the back of a couple of, of global clients. A very different approach from some of the other agencies. And that probably meant that for a while, we weren't as good as a network for for global clients as others. But I think it was really fundamental in terms of building the quality mm. of our network from the ground up. And, I, and I'm convinced that that is the key to having a very strong network, is to have very yeah. strong local agencies. It's, it's, it's a bit like you're saying in terms of employing good people. If you start yeah. with strength in each region, then you're starting from a much better base, aren't you, from which to then build yeah. in the... The network, yeah, exactly, and yeah. You, and, it, and it tends to attract other good people. So you know, if your if your goal is to get an unfair share of what is a limited pool of truly exceptional people, that's one of the ways you can you can move closer to that goal. So so coming back to to creative work, what, what would be your advice in terms of working with clients to get great work out the door? Because obviously every client wants to do good work, but have you got any advice for the kind of working relationship with your clients that has helped to you know facilitate? getting the work done a couple of points the first is to recognize that it is how people feel that drives what they do Mm. and that emotion is the generating powerful emotions is the most effective thing we can do irrespective irrespective of what form the execution takes if you if you can create an intense emotional reaction you are more likely to have a disproportionately good result and I, and I say it's important to set that up up front because I think we all know that intuitively, but we have a habit of pushing it out of ourselves and trying to be very rational and spotlight <laughs> about, about the discussions that we have about what we're trying to do, when in fact we know we all behave more like Bart Simpson than, than Dr. <laughs> the second thing is recognizing the importance of really strong platform ideas that you can then build great executions on top of 
in all different forms for all of the touch points across what are increasingly non-linear customer journeys. But you need really strong platform ideas to do that. I think the third thing I would say is don't underestimate the value of craft in generating a disproportionate effect. And then I think I learned a really amazing lesson from a client in Australia years ago. It was one of those where you just slap your head and say, how come I've been in the business this long and didn't spot this? We had, we had a client, the National Australian Bank at the time, and we did a really fantastic campaign um, called, uh, called the Big Breakup. The idea was that consumers thought that the big four banks were operating in cahoots with each other. So on Valentine's Day, we broke up with the other banks. And we had these ads saying, you know, it's, it's not us, it's you. We're fed up with your lying and your cheating. We're going our own way. It's fabulously successful Grand Prix Effectiveness Award winner. And I went to see the CEO of the bank and I said to him, that was, a, that was a really bold thing to do. And he looked at me as if I had, you know, something wrong with me. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, publicly breaking up with the other banks, that was a, that was a bold thing to do. And he said, he said, you're out of your mind. I'm a banker. I'm not paid to be bold. I'm paid to manage risk. And when your guys showed me that campaign, I mentally calculated the downside risk, which was, in my view, we might be laughed at. We might be the subject of late night comedians, gags. I might have some very awkward moments in the golf club. But three weeks afterwards, it would all wash away and, some, and something else, some other story mm. would take place. And in the course of that, we would not lose a corporate client. We would not lose a retail customer. And on yeah. the basis that I could live with the downside, I went ahead. Because I had no idea, I had no way of quantifying what the upside was. And I realized that really what you have to do thing I would encourage clients to do is, is think like a banker. Think about how you identify quantify risk so that you can live with it or not and if you can't you can't if you have if it's a lot is there a way to mitigate it but that's how you can realize the upside whereas most of the time what people are trying to do is pursue certainty and the inevitable result of the pursuit of certainty is the norm you will get closer and closer to the norm the clo the more certain you are and so that, that basic idea, and it's counterintuitive, think like a banker, manage risk, don't pursue certainty, I think is one of the ways you can have really big breakthroughs. Huh. Um, it's, so, it's so interesting the way you tell that story, actually, because um, in my work at System One, people often assume it's all about testing creative and making the creative better. And of course, that's true. But actually, the most powerful use of System One is making the rational case for emotion to very rational people in businesses who are being presented with creative work that scares them yeah. and they worry. And, 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 you know, because, you know, I mean, we, we, we operate in the creative world, so we're very comfortable with, you know, the, the apparent risks, as, as, as you'd see. And actually, it's weird. I found that actually the power of system one is more about reassuring people that are looking at downside risk and thinking what can go wrong than it is necessarily making a more emotional campaign, although that, of course, is what we want to do as well. Mm -hmm. But it's quite fascinating. That ended up becoming probably the main driver of why, you know, System 1 data works and, and yeah. how it helps. I've been in so many situations where, you know, early in my career particularly, I've had that awkward moment where I show the creative to the board 
And, you know, it's just a tumbleweed moment. And I'm thinking, I've spent months on this campaign. It's, I'm sure it's going to be one of the most effective. And, and some of them went on to win Effies and so on. But you have that horrible moment where you're in front of people that are, are thinking like bankers, as you said, and they're just looking at it completely differently to how you looked at it, looked at it with the months spent on the craft. And the ability to have the data to go, well, actually, this yeah. is a good investment decision. It just changes the conversation radically. I also think that it's very different at the end than it is through each of the steps. You know, when you, when you have a really brilliant piece of work and you show it to somebody who doesn't know anything about it until they see it, then they experience it as human beings first and, and you know, rational business people second. And again, emotion drives the behavior. So they'll, 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 they will then find all the reasons why it's a great piece of work. When you're working through the various stages, when you're defining the brief, when you're looking at the first ideas, when you're looking at the execute, that's when it's that's when it's hardest to Mm. to remember that that is what is actually going to work. That's really true. And and I I found one of the lessons I've I've learned myself is that you get very attached to something through the process, of course, and you have to remember your first reaction that, that, you know, the audience, the board you'll present at the end, you've got to remember that first reaction is the most important one and the emotion it creates inside you is is what you're trying to achieve, isn't it? I want to just pick up on, you mentioned the importance of a platform idea. And of course, one of my absolute favorites campaigns of yours is Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry. Can you tell me how that campaign came about? Yes, I, I, again, one of, the, one of the things I would say to clients is, is don't expect it all to happen in a linear process because that's not always the way it does happen. And I, uh, the other point I would say is that David Lynch, the filmmaker, has this wonderful line. Uh, he says that ideas are like fish. You can't make a fish. You can only catch a fish. And, and I think the truth of you're not you when you're hungry, which I, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I agree with you. I think, it's, I think it's one of the greatest campaigns of all time. Mm. But, but it was caught. And the, and the brief we were working on wasn't was actually a Super Bowl commercial, which ended up being a Betty White commercial, but it was a Super Bowl commercial, and, and, and lots and lots of scripts were developed. And my partner, David Luboz, spotted, buried in a, as a line of copy in one of the scripts, this line, you're not you when you're hungry. And he said, that, take that, pull that out, take that, and now let's go and execute against that. And, and so it was caught it wasn't made. So that highlights the importance of catching things. You need, to, you need to work with somebody or have people who are good at catching them. But then once you've got it, as with all great insights, they're completely obvious once somebody has... <laughs> That's true. And, and so seeing it, catching it, and then saying, this is the thing we now need to work against, uh, is the way in which that, that campaign was was born. And I, and I think that's, I, to me, that's an important lesson because a lot of time people say, well, we, you know, we want to develop the strategy, then a brief, and then quotes the idea, and then we'll do all of the executions. But the development of the idea really depends on, uh, you know, a, a messy process where what you're doing is, is having lots of different ideas and then trying to catch things, trying to find something, to mm. find something that you can then build everything around. Yeah, I love that definition because very often with great campaigns, the answer is actually there in front of you, but it's a case of finding it, isn't it? And, and or yes. reminding yourself of it and then and then doing something with it. I, I guess we have this idea, don't we, that we're always inventing a new thing. 
And very often, the, you know, the answer is, is there somewhere buried in a brief or somewhere in a bit of research or even somewhere in some old campaign ideas that have, have yeah. been around for a while. No, yeah. and it's, it's often that. It's, it's often a, a, just a very new way of seeing something that's been there a long time and just a, a little twist, just a twist, a fresh perspective. It's that... It's, it's one of the things that makes the business so much fun, to be honest, because mm. because you can't build a production line for that. And going back to your craft point, of course, what you I think one of the standout things is, is how well executed that idea is and across lots of. In, I mean, I remember a lot of the social media, you know, reactive stuff as well to that idea was, was absolutely brilliant. You know, picking up on a topical event and and playing with. You know, right. playing with the concept. Well, that, and that, you know, to, in today's world, that's one of the tests of a great platform idea is how easy it is for other people to play with. I mean, you want the public playing with it because that's how you get the extra mileage from it. Mm. And when it's as simple and as truthful, but still as surprising as you're not you when you're hungry, that's when people play with it. I mean, the crafting you know, is interesting because somebody asked me what my favorite piece of work is. And it's a text message from American Airlines, which is not a sentence they ever expected to say. But I was in LA and I was supposed to be flying back to New York. And I got a text message that said, you may want to pack an umbrella. We're Mm -hmm. expecting big storms in the New York area. Delays are probable, cancellations possible. If you can, you may want to uh, book another flight. And the same information could have been delivered exactly as this was to me at exactly the right time in my journey through my mobile phone, where it said, which was what normally would have happened, weather alert in all caps, exclamation mark, storms in New York City, delays and cancellations uh, possible. But because it opened with that sentence, you may want to pack an umbrella, it made me smile. It, yeah. it made me happy. Even though the news I was getting was really, really bad, it made me smile. And I did fly, and I shouldn't have flown because I ended up being diverted and delayed and ended up spending three hours on the tarmac in D.C. And even then, even then, I wasn't getting mad. All the people around me were tearing their hair out and screaming at their stewardesses and everything. I wasn't. I was, like, fine. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking, my God, is the reason I am not getting crazy because of how that text message made me feel yesterday and I concluded the answer was yes that is why I'm not getting crazy now now just think of what of the return in brand equity from that one sentence you may want to pack an umbrella Hmm. and that's what I mean by well obviously that shows what craft is because again I'm not sure that could have been written by an algorithm but but B Coming back to the first point, emotion, an emotional response, positive emotional response from any contact that you have with the brand at all is going to be worth real money. And that, I think it's underlooked. I think it's undervalued. Well, it is actually. Going back to, you were saying at the beginning about how much has changed in our industry. One thing that I may have changed negatively is we don't seem to use humor as much now as we used to. (laughs) Do you see that? Because I I think humor is a wonderful way of taking a serious situation 
and as you know as american airlines have done taking a serious situation and, and delivering information in a way that you're more open to yes. and I, I mean there's been various studies you know looking at the role of humor you know in advertising and its power but also in its declining use is that something you see yeah, I do, and I, and it's and it's hard to explain because the the evidence for uh, value is is really compelling. I mean, I mm. I, <laughs> I, I, t- I I remember leaving a restaurant one night with my wife, and there was a there was a homeless guy standing outside the restaurant, and he said, "I'm homeless. I'm a vet, but I'm not bitter." <laughs> and I we sort of stopped, and he said, and he said to my wife, he said. Do you know what the best thing about sleeping with a homeless guy is? And and she was a bit taken aback and said no. And he said afterwards you can drop me off anywhere. And, it was, <laughs> and I and I gave him two hundred dollars. I gave him two hundred dollars. But but it was it was just a great example. I thought of of your. Yeah, I know you, this is something you've talked about, which is happiness works better than sadness. And and you know people don't like to be reminded of a struggle necessarily, and that can last a long time. But I, I, I think it's, a, it's something we've, we've moved away from more than we should have. And I, you know, I also was thinking, you know, if you're in London, street markets, the stalls that sell best are the ones that have somebody who's very charming and funny selling from them. It's, mm. it's hard to get angry with somebody who makes you smile, and it's very hard not to buy from somebody who makes you smile. That's really true. There's a, there's a lovely book by Paul Felwick, actually. I don't know if you come across it, called Why Did the Peddler Sing? And it, yeah. it, it uses exactly that analogy, going back to you know, many years when the peddler would come round and sing a song outside your house to try and sell you something. And, right. and in a way, advertising is like putting on a show. It's entertainment. Yeah. It's, it, 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 you know, that's the role it's performing. And I think sometimes, you know, quite rightly, we, we, you know, we take issues seriously, you know, in terms of in society and we have a role to play. But maybe we've forgotten the entertainment value that advertising yeah. brings. Well, I think it's about, and I wouldn't I wouldn't just call it entertainment. I think it's about making you feel better. I don't know if that's necessarily entertaining, but but it, it makes you feel good. And if it makes you feel good, you're less likely to be hostile and more likely to be open to buying. I think it's. Yeah. Well, another example, actually, within your portfolio, sticking with the confectionery theme, is M&M's, of course. And, and, you know, last year, you know, so we're in Super Bowl week. You did a, that brilliant M&M's ad, which came number two on the System 1 uh, leaderboard of, of Super Bowl ad last year, which I think is a great example of, of humor, you know, personality, but familiar characters that you've built up over many years with the M&M's characters. And, and, and that just has appeal. Everybody, you know, can, you know, makes everyone feel good when yeah. you see an M&M's advert. That, that, that's a particularly good one. No, and I, I think the Super Bowl is quite interesting in that respect, in that it's, it's, it's very easy to be seduced into formulaic gags as opposed to being funny. But actually, it's, mm. it's, it is more subtle than that. That, that's not, that isn't being engaging and charming and funny. That's just, that's just throwing a load of gags out, yeah. uh, which is not the same thing. Well, one of my favourite Super Bowl ads was, you know, where, where, where Tide literally made every other, they took the stereotype of every other ad and said, that's, if it's got a white shirt in, that's another Tide ad. I thought it was yeah. very, always, yeah, I you know, take... I guess we'd call that meta today, wouldn't we? Yes. Like, <laughs> it was a very well thought through and very, very well yeah. thought. 
Very, very clever parody, wasn't it? So if I could ask you about, you know, pitching is a sort of often a sensitive subject in, in kind of agency client relationships. What's, uh, you obviously must have pitched a lot as a, you know, as a, yourself and as an agency. What, what tips would you have for a successful pitch? Oh my God, I'm not giving those out in public. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, tell you what, tell, tell, me, tell, me the, tell me the best pitch you, you, you've been in. I, 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 I honestly, I find that really hard to do because because I, I would absolutely say I've never been in a perfect one. There isn't there isn't a single pitch I've ever been in where I haven't been able to, you know, think of something we could have done different or better. And and you know that is to differing degrees depending on on what you're what you're pitching for. I think it's very rare. And I, you know, the, the, one of the things that's quite interesting at the moment is we pitched for the Home Depot last year, and we've ended up making a lot of the work that was presented in the, the final presentation, and that just doesn't happen that often. It doesn't, does it? No. But but we really have a lot of it, hmm. and so that to me is probably a sign of of a really well, yeah, run pitch. Not yeah. It's on our side, but but it just doesn't happen that often. I, I agree with you actually. I I, I want probably the, if if I were answering the question, I would. I think I, I was working with Iris. I was on working on Gatorade in the UK, yeah. and Iris pitched on a Wednesday, and they they had, they put this film together where they'd all gone out and played sport, and they'd you know uncovered the insight, and then they'd taken the core idea, shown how it could be used in all manner of different scenarios. It, it was really emotional actually, and, and also right for the target audience. And this is on the Wednesday. On the Thursday, we had, I was work, uh, working at Britvic, we had our quarterly conference where we would brief the entire sales team. And there were 600 or 700 sales team. And it was one of the most nerve-wracking points as a, right. as a young marketing guy where you have to kind of turn up and go, ta-da, here's, yeah. my, you know, here's my next campaign. And I took the deck. I, took, I literally asked, I said, can you put this on a USB? And um, I presented the very, the, the very pitch deck the next day to the entire company. And blew them away. It was, it was amazing, yeah. actually. But but you're right. It's it's that doesn't happen often. I, I don't think we should expect that it would, because no. in a way, life doesn't happen like that often. Anyway, it is pretty magical when it does. Well, it's so it's so often about working out, you know, the, who you want to work with, isn't it? Yes. In terms of like, have you got a rapport with the people? Do they understand my business? Do I do I believe that they've got the capability to, you know, to? I fundamentally believe that it's seldom about silver bullets, mm. and and really it's about degrees of confidence in the probability of success working with these mm. people that's the mm. and one of the things that can increase your degree of confidence and increase your sense of what what probable because it's seldom certain it's not as it's funny actually an exercise i've often done is is um after making pointing an agency after a pitch process i've gone back and looked at the decks that they've submitted and I find this weird thing happens is when I look at the deck, it doesn't marry up to how I felt about the pitch. So I'll, I'll go through the process and I'll go, right, we're going to appoint them. And then I'll sit and look at the decks and go, actually, it doesn't necessarily match up. And I think so much of it is it is in the personal, isn't it? And, and, and in, the, in the team and whether you believe in them and, yeah. and so on. And, and often I've ended up quite, quite unusually actually ended up doing kind of pitch training, you know, in gap, you know, when I've been freelancing. In, in kind of gaps in my career. And I've often said to people that it's how you make people feel in the pitch is more predictive of what they'll then decide than necessarily what you might have what written down. 
you know, yeah. Which is what you, right where we started on this, isn't it? It is, isn't it? We're back to that again, you know. Yeah, the end, <laughs> there's no getting away from it. We're all people first. We are, we are. We're very, very, very true. So listen, just to sort of round up, as, as you look ahead uh, to, to this year, maybe, you know, beyond this year, what are you seeing as the kind of big issues or opportunities that, that we in advertising need to uh, face into? We have to recognize what consumers expect if they're going to feel really fantastic. And, and I think what they expect is, and I think, you know, again, I think the only way you can maintain your sanity when everything is changing is by picking something that you're going to focus on and stick to. And, then, and, I, and I think you're seldom going to go wrong by being obsessed with a consumer or people. I wouldn't even call them consumers, let's call them. But what people expect is effortless, seamlessly connected, magical experiences at every touch point along what are increasingly non-linear purchase journeys. Therefore, what we as agencies need to be able to deliver is that. We need to be able to analyze the data, understand what those journeys look like recognizing that they're not linear we need to isolate the moments of pain the moments of potential and we need to use craft and and powerful platforms to create experiences at each of those moments that are going to make people feel great make make people feel happy like the text message i talked about yeah. and i think that's uh, that's you know that is how we will generate the return for our clients investment that is exceptional rather than normative and it's and it's it's jolly hard to do but that's where the fruit is that's what yeah. we have to focus on and I, you know, we look at just the cost of a super bowl spot this year compared to last year uh, i think six and a half million isn't it up from five and a half million so the the the, the cost of advertising is going up so we need to make sure that the, the quality of engagement we get from it is is going up further yeah i mean in a sense i'm 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 more worried about the fact that that 70% of a lot of digital advertising is just scrolled through rather than yes. even engaged with. I'm, I'm kind of more worried about that than $70 yeah, yeah. for a Super Bowl spot. Because <laughs> that's very most, true, actually. Most of what people spend, most of the money that's invested isn't invested in Super Bowls. Yeah. It's the thing that we see and talk about a lot, mm. but... But that isn't where the money is going and, and, and making sure that we can make those experiences as compelling and captivating as possible mm. is, is to me where I think the yeah. real prize is. Yeah, oh, it's very, very well said. I, 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 can't, I can't remember quite who I was talking to, but someone in a, from a digital agency talking about click-through rate or, 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 or skip-through rate, 99.4 or something. You know, the vast majority of people are not clicking on your ad. And then Ehrenberg Bass did some research recently that showed that in any B2B buying situation, 95% of people browsing are not actually in the market for that purchase at that right. point. So, right. you know, the majority of it is wasted. So we have to, yeah. well, it's not, sorry, it's not wasted if you approach it in the right way, of course, to, to use it to build your brand. But we have to remember, you know, that we've got a big battle on our hands. No, I, 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 it, all, it makes me smile because, I, it, you know, the great quote that is um, attributed to Lord Leverhulme if you're in the UK and Sam Walton if you're in the US, uh, for which there is no evidence that either of them ever said it. You know, I know that half of my advertising yeah. is wasted. The trouble is I just don't know which half. Yeah. It, to me, it's always struck me as ironic that that would be worse than knowing precisely which 96.5% is wasted. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> yes, true. Yes, exactly. If I knew half but didn't know which half, I'd be I'd be perfectly happy with that. You'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? Because you know, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's you're outperforming the, the mean by a lot. That's by a very way. true. Yeah. Well, actually, I'll be just coming back to our system one database is quite freaky because on long term brand building measures, the ability to shift market share, 49 percent of ads we've tested and we've tested 75,000 ads in the US and UK are a one star, which mean they have no impact at all on the market share of that brand. So weirdly, that 50 percent. Hundreds of years right. after, whoever made it up, we don't know, but whoever made that up was 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 not far that's off the money. Fantastic, and 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 yeah. so that's scary because that's the number for basically films that people have. It is audiovisual, yeah. That's that's the good half. <laughs> yeah, imagine what it's like for the stuff you're scrolling yeah. when you're in. Yeah, we we have gone as far as B to B, and in yeah. B to B, that number's eighty percent is wasted. Wow. So it, that's still audiovisual, but it, within yeah. a B two B context. So again, um, uh, the waste beyond that must be must be higher. Again, I'm assuming. Mm. I, I need to try and work it out. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it does get it exponentially more challenging. Brilliant. Well, listen, that's that's probably a good place to to leave people. Andrew, thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you for spending some time with us. It's been a real pleasure, John. Thanks a lot. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening to the Uncensored CMO. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Robertson and appreciated all the wisdom and experience that Andrew has and his advice uh, for advertising and how to make great creative work. If you'd like to find out more about the Uncensored CMO, you can subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Please do that. Um, I'd love it if you give me a review as well. Uh, it's always great to have feedback and uh, really appreciate any um, requests or uh, feedback on what you think of the show if you want to follow me I'm on Twitter at Uncensored CMO and you can find me on LinkedIn where my name is John Evans that's John without an H uh, please do get in touch and I look forward to hearing from you next time thank you <laughs>